0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon.
1: Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond.
0: And I'm Megan Lee.
1: Horror works at its best when it's relatable. The best protagonists in a horror story are those that are just like you. They're sensible, just trying to scrape by, possibly raise families and just make the most of life. We empathise most with those we understand. Cassandra Corr is a no stranger to the average Joe, or for a feminist podcast, should that be the average Jane, as a main protagonist. From a chef who caters for gods a PI who tracks down monsters, or a party of ordinary everyday people whose wedding ceremony gets fatally sidetracked by a vengeful Japanese ghost. Their new novella, The Salt Grows Heavy, features a man-eating mermaid front and centre, who also happens to be an ex-queen, and there's a plague doctor, and feral children and surgeons masquerading as gods, all set in a secondary fantasy world. And yet, as with much of Cassandra's previous work, they managed to make these strange, even vicious characters seem entirely comprehensible, quite ordinary, and even sympathetic at times. Cassandra is with us today to talk about the place of ordinary people in horror, as well as the value of novellas over novels as a means to tell a story. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining
2: us. Please tell our
1: listeners a little bit about yourself and your work so far.
2: Hey there. Thank you for having me. Uh my name is Sandra Cobb. By day, I work in video games. I freelance for everyone in the industry, from AAA corporations to lower indies. By night, I write a lot of horror and lift incredibly heavy weights.
1: Incredibly heavy weights. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about your your work today? What of your um? What are the books that we should be looking at for for our listeners?
2: Oh God, I'm so bad at. Self-promotion, I swear to God. Uh, The Salt girl's heavy. That's the one that's coming out really soon, actually. God, Uh, May 2nd. And The Dead Takes the Atrium, which is a co-written novel with New York Times bestseller Richard Cadry. It is about a coked up, down on her luck, magical investigator in New York City who makes bad decisions and then makes a whole lot more.
1: That sounds highly entertaining and probably very appealing to a audience that is going to go be seeing, is it Cocaine Bear that is
2: new?
1: <laughs> yes. So before we look at the themes of your the work, let's have a brief chat about The Salt Grows Heavy because I love that book. I really did. It was short and sweet. It was brutal and brilliant. Uh, oh, it was just great. Uh, I'm going to highly recommend it to everybody I meet.
0: I'm so, sorry, i th- I think you should uh, take that as a blurb. Brutal and brilliant. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. I am going to
2: learn to sell it all.
1: I shall make you a little bookmark for it or a little pin badge or something. <laughs> the Salt Grows Heavy is a story about a mermaid, but it's certainly not like any mermaid I've ever seen before, um, and I've seen quite a lot. So did you find mermaids like this in previous stories and folklore, or is this character a complete invention of yours?
2: Complete invention of my own. Uh, Like, you I've read a lot of mermaid stories from various cultures and stuff. And it's always been interesting to me that mermaids and sirens in many ways represent desire. They shift and they change depending on who's talking about them, whose story is being told. And I wanted to capture some of that and make something a lot creepier.
1: And what about your inspiration for the surgeons and the feral children? Because I think from what I remember it's got a another fairy tale link to is it the children that are playing um burial? At the slaughter. Uh, yes, children it's that are playing at slaughter, at slaughter. that's yes. it. Yes. So what other fairy tales have you woven into this story then?
2: The tree surgeons, in fact. They are an actual storytell of themselves. And I always found them creepy to no end and want this take them to a dark conclusion so to speak.
1: And you were saying earlier that your plague doctor was just a moment of whimsy it wasn't there wasn't any.
2: (laughs) My brain is incredibly visual and very often when I write stories the imagery manifests itself um, to a point where I can't think of anything else I can barely see through these visions of the story just sort of one thing come out onto the page and my brain immediately latched onto the concept of the plague doctor, the mask, the carriage that they have, and some of the stories I've heard about them. So yeah, the moment of dark whimsy. Okay. I'm a little bit terrified to ever get a
0: glimpse into your mind. <laughs> knowing like knowing the kinds of things that you write, if you don't, like <laughs> Just consumed by visualizing what it is that makes it onto the page.
2: Like, I am a little bit terrified. <laughs> I will say that's the main reason I've never done hard drugs. People have occasionally brought up the topic of like mushrooms and acid. And I'm like, I have no desire to see those as actual hallucinations. My brain is a concerning place as it is.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It would be terrifying for any writer to do some drugs and have their characters come and sit and chat to them. I certainly know I wouldn't want some of mine. (laughs) 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 Following on from this tangent, which of your characters would you least like to meet? Because, I mean, you've got some pretty vicious ones there. If you had to avoid one at all costs, I have to ask, which would it be?
2: Oh, God. Probably the Dark King from my short story, The Games We Play." So, it's another secondary world fantasy. And in this particular world, you have sentient birds and, sorry, sapien birds and sapient canines, kind of like doing that almost furry thing. And the birds live under the protection of the dogs. Um, they have a good life. The dogs actually go off their way to be a good government. But half of the population is. I guess you would say earmarked for being eaten by the dogs. It's just how they've kind of accepted things. And the dog king is super nice about all of it. He wears little gold rimmed glasses. He's urbane. He is warm. He's a great diplomat. Except that is, of course, all a front. And when you meet the real dog king, he's the most terrifying creature ever. I do not want to encounter that thing.
0: Yeah, remind me never to, like, try shrooms just after reading one of your books, okay? <laughs> I <doubt it. laughs> They should come with a warning. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do not consume with drugs, please.
1: Well, I was saying before this episode started that in the history of all my horror reading, Cassandra is the second author who has ever made me have to go and have a bit of a lie down after reading <laughs> one of her books. <laughs> The first one was Adam Neville, and um, yeah, it made my morning sickness quite a lot worse. And Cassandra, it wasn't as bad, but I did have to go and just go, yeah, just need a bit of a break. <laughs> so no shrooms stream, no for me either. <laughs>
2: um, if you ever want to have that experience again, I really do recommend Stephen Graham Jones, The Lease of My Scars. It is the only book in my life that has ever made me just quietly put it down when I was done go to the shower, turn into the hottest setting I could and just spend half an hour trying to scrub the grime from under my skin. It just...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a book recommendation and a half, I think. (laughs) Okay, so you've written, as we've established, many, many stories. And while they all have different settings, they all feature an individual who struggles against circumstances. Why did you decide to make each of your central characters someone ordinary, who who seems to be at odds with the world around them?
2: I think it was because, it is because rather, that I spent about a decade of my life completely nomadic. I was on a different continent every three months. And the people who fascinated me most, the people who just absolutely electrified me after an encounter and conversation with them, were just the ordinary folk. And on top of that all, There's a sense when you travel as much as I did, that there are just secrets waiting everywhere, that each person might be a part of this utterly fantastical journey who might be encountering magical creatures for all you know. But you won't, because you only get a fleeting glimpse of that before you move on. So I think that thought, that fancy just stuck with me and has sort of manifested itself
0: in my work. So I remember when I was doing um, a writing program and one of my teachers was like, okay, so we have two kinds of protagonists. We have an extraordinary protagonist dealing with the world around them, or you have an ordinary protagonist who is dealing with something extraordinary. Or you can have an, you know, and then there's like, well, there's also like extraordinary dealing with extraordinary, but I think I'm I'm similar in that I've always kind of liked, I well, I've preferred ordinary characters dealing with the extraordinary. To me, it's just a little bit more interesting, but also I, I like kind of that idea that you can have an ordinary person just dealing with their day-to-day and almost anything can become extraordinary if you look at it from a different angle. So You know, to me, being, I don't know, a butcher is extraordinary because it's nothing to do with my life and and spending a day in a slaughterhouse would be so kind of fantastical in a way to me because it's just so outside of my comfort zone. So I quite like the idea of having a lot of ordinary folk or, or ordinary days, ordinary people going about their lives, regardless of whether or not it's in
2: our world or a secondary world? I think as well that it's always fascinating to me to see how capable ordinary folk are of the extraordinaire. Like everyone you meet has been responsible for a small miracle of their own, even when they don't have enough. They will take time after their day after 20 hours shift to make food for a friend because a friend needs something else. Um, They will bring whatever they can to assist, assist her in grief, things like that. And it's just lovely to me to see all of that, how far humanity will go for each other, for love, for friendship, for familial ties. It's less interesting to me if it comes from an extraordinary character, because I always imagine those kind of people are told, oh, you have to do this. You have to be like that. You have a noble purpose in the world. And when you have all of those inside you, it feels a little less authentic, a little less sincere than, say, an ordinary person going, well, I'm going to fight a dragon to save the woman I love.
1: I have to say, Cassandra, that one of my favorite characters of yours is Rupert Wong. Um, and of all the worlds <laughs> you've written, it just feels like that is the most jam packed onto the page. And I just wondered, talking about ordinary people and, and their struggles, there were so many job opportunities for Rupert in, in that world. What was it about a chef in particular that really made you went, yeah, yeah, that's totally what my guy's gonna be?
2: I think it has to do with the fact that I am such a foodie. And one of the things I learned um, from those 10 years of travel is that if you can make somebody a three course meal, from anything in your fridge, no one ever really wants you to leave. They're like, yeah, you can keep the spare bedroom as long as you like. That is part of it. And the other part of it, I have a great guest, just to be clear. (laughs) If you have me in your home, I will cook you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I think the other part about it is I love the act of cooking. I cook constantly myself And I'm fascinated with the amount of detail that's involved with it, the amount of creation, the invention, the small little things that you have to do to make any meal perfect.
0: Okay. If you were angling for an invitation
1: to Tuscany, yes,
0: (laughs) you are welcome anytime.
1: (laughs) I think, Megan, you need to read Rupert Wong and see just what kind of things he cooks first. (laughs) And, and then maybe have a prearranged menu with Cassandra. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean he's not called Rupert Wong Cannibal Chef for nothing, so
2: <laughs> <laughs> I serve not use that kind of meat ever.
1: Breaking with this tradition of kind of the ordinary person, we come back again to The Salt Grows Heavy, where your main protagonist is yeah, she's a mermaid, but she's also a queen. Um, and I just kind of wondered why you suddenly went. I'm going to go from chefs and PIs and all these people who just kind of dwell in the background. And I'm going to I'm going to go for a queen, um, but also a displaced queen as well. So, what was your thinking behind casting that character?
2: She never wanted to be a queen. Um, There's a short story that is at the end of The Salt Girls Heavy that's actually kind of like the origin story for the whole novella. And she was just fished out of the water and taken away. And I kind of had a thought about that. Like, what would it be like to be that kind of queen? To be told, yes, you are living the height of luxury. You are in power. But the truth is, you have a husband that is keeping you locked up, who is trotting you out. Are you really part of royalty or are you just another person trapped in a terrible situation? You
1: said she wrote a short story at the end of The Salt Grows Heavy. And I have to say that, sadly, my arc did not... um our advanced reading copy, did not have a copy of that. So I'm going to be getting on to the publishers and see if I can get a proper one when it comes out. Um, but I mean, that kind, of, that kind of ties in with my next question because in The Salt Grows Heavy, we join the protagonist when it seems like the main action is kind of done because she's a traveller well, and she meets the plague doctor and her story is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I can't fault this book. It is brilliant. But <laughs> you do kind of keep hinting that she was queen of a whole kingdom and then she had children and the children ate everyone. And I'm like, is is that not the story we should be hearing? So I wondered why you kind of went, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start it after everybody's dead. <laughs> and also why it was then, if you start at that point, why you decided you sneak a short story in at the end?
2: Oh, the short story actually came first. I think that came out in 2016. 2017, sometime around. That.
1: Ah, I see. So the short story, right? I got it. Okay, that's that's really interesting.
2: And as for why it would start it right after that, I guess at the end of the short story, uh, not to spoil anything, her children go on the rampage after she quietly opens the window, allowing them to take the revenge that she never got to, do, to enact herself. And I figured. We all know what's going to happen next when ravenous creatures swarm over a kingdom that has no protection about it. And what followed, what got me started on the novella was I always wanted to know what happens after happily ever after. What's next? What's next, especially in the context of a horror story like this? And that was where my interest weighed, I guess. I didn't want to tell the story that everyone knew. I wanted to tell the story that everyone forgets about
0: i love that your happy ever after is like monsters rampaging uh just (laughs) monsters get to have their happy endings yeah yeah absolutely okay so a lot of the stories you've published have been sort of medium-length fiction so more novellas or you have a lot of short stories so you've got one novel But what is it about the shorter medium that really appeals to you? Is there something that you feel like you're drawn particularly to shorter
2: fiction? I think, again, it ties a lot to the fact that I was nomadic for so long. And so much of my life in various places were just snapshots, just glimpses of things before I wandered off. And they were no less lovely or intriguing for the brevity. And I think some of that followed me into my writing. I just want to give people a quick glance into the world, just long enough to wander and then vanish away. And I think that a part of that is I got really inspired by uh, a lot of flash fiction I read early on. There is a story on daily science fiction that I think about constantly because it is in some ways my perfect little story and it's, something i chase in my own work and the story essentially goes the devil shows up and he meets a man and he goes up to man and goes what is your heart's desire i can give you anything you want and the man is like i don't want anything from you mr devil i have everything i need and the devil was like oh is that true and the guy's like well i have a lovely wife i have great children i have a wonderful job i have friends yeah my life is good but the devil is persistent and so he goes Guess but, what have you dreamed about? What about the road not taken? Where do you want? Where would you have gone? What would you have done with your life? Even if everything is perfect now, and a man thinks about it for a moment and goes, "Well, I've always wanted to play the blues," and the story ends right there. And I remember my brain just kind of exploding. And, oh, oh no! I know exactly what's going to happen. I couldn't stop wondering. Did a man lose his family entirely? Was he given a guitar and then automatically learned the blues after the devil took it all? Um, But yeah, that one short story, that one piece of flash fiction stuck. And I think novellas are my way of exploring what it did to me as I'm in a slightly longer format. It's interesting because
0: a lot of people... Don't like the kind of cliffhanger ending, for want of a better term. You know, they like to have a lot more closure. But me personally, I've always liked stories where the ending is a little bit more open and and has, leaves me questioning and leaves me kind of inspired and has my brain churning and going, "Oh, this is what I imagine happened next." I don't necessarily want the author to tell me exactly what happened. I want something for my brain to be able to go, no, wait, I know where this is going. And for that kind of almost just to be mine, like it's a personal thing, you know, it's, it's not, it's no longer the author's thing. I've taken it on. I'm the reader and and the rest of the journey is for me to make up. Uh, But I, I know that there are some readers who feel very, very differently to me. Like some some people actually say that like novellas, they they don't really like novellas because they don't get enough words in. There's not enough character development, not a like a complex enough plot. And I always find that a bit ridiculous in terms of criticism because I think even short stories can be incredibly complex and and full of really deep characters. But how do you feel about? such criticism. I mean, what are the main benefits you see of novellas for writing them and for, for readers to enjoy them?
2: Um, I think different strokes for different people, ultimately. If people want complete stories, that that's all well and good. And there is media out there that allows for like, there are lots of doorstopper novels. But, yeah, I agree with you. I love the open-endedness of novellas, both in terms of writing them and reading them. And I think they are truer to life than the tidy novel, so to speak, Uh, because almost everything in the world kind of ends on cliffhangers in many ways. If we're going to be macabre about it, every life and its end is often incredibly sudden, even if you're planning for it. And so not always knowing the answer is a natural part of being human, at least for me.
0: So we want to ask more of a like craft question now. So Uh obviously you've written these really expansive worlds in itty bitty spaces. So, you know, then they have loads of world building going on. How does a writer convey a whole society an unfamiliar world in the space of only a couple hundred pages? I mean, do you have a way that you go into this? Is there, you know, anything that you've learned over the years is, is like your way into creating this whole new world or is it just because you are this crazy visual person whose mind
2: is a terrifying place to be? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Weirdly enough, my world-building comes in many ways from my video game development background. And so when you're writing for video games, uh, one of my bosses once taught me this. You're actually writing for three different kinds of audiences at the exact same time. You are first and foremost writing for the shooty-pew-pew pew kind of person who just wants to speedrun run a video game. They don't really care about the story. But if you mess up, If things do not make sense, they'll still notice. So you have to be able to do coherent but broad strokes for them. Then you have the second type who is less of the shooty pew pew kind of people, but they're not going to go through every single side quest. They're not going to pick out every single book from the library and the game and stuff like that. They want the story. They want something coherent and chunky. But I don't want to waste too much time on it. And the last one, of course, is, well, I guess people who probably read a lot of books on top of playing video games, the ones who argue on Reddit about every single detail on a character's costume, who will pay note to every in-game book. You have to be able to create worlds that make sense to all three player types. And to do so, you need to understand the fundamental logic behind your world you need to know what are the tenets of it so in terms of world building i tend to think about what makes sense and what will always make sense regardless of the circumstances within the story much like how gravity always functions the same way in our world certain things always need to function in a very specific way in mind and when you have those tent poles you can start layering other things onto it and from there uh an actual world forms because the human subconscious understands this is how reality functions.
1: We've sort of gone all around the, um, the writing craft and thought about the wider things. I would like to concentrate on just a couple of, of stories that you've written. Um, so we're going to wind up with two writers who clearly inspired you. One of whom is a top, top favorite of mine and Megan. And they other one who's a bit more, um, controversial so your story quiet dead things in the shirley jackson inspired anthology when things get dark has so many connections to the lottery Now um, i was reading the introduction to it by ellen who was kind of going i didn't want something that was very very definitely shirley jackson i wanted everybody to put their own take on it and to you know think about their own spin and, and whatever so why i mean I love The Lottery, and it's one of her most famous ones. But why was that story in particular um, an inspiration to you for when you were writing for this anthology?
2: Wow, a lot of my answers connect to the fact that I was nomadic. Now that I think about it, this is going to be another one of those. So when I was traveling a lot, I was most comfortable in large cities, New York, Tokyo, London, places where you can vanish But my travels also took me to a lot of small towns where I'd be the only person of color there. And I remember being occasionally unsettled by it because people would stare, people would be fascinated. Some of the looks would be hostile. Some of the looks would be suspicious. I didn't really know what to do about all of that. And I didn't know what people were talking about because I knew in a town so small, conversation happened. People, yes, yes, large orange cat, I will come pet you soon. God. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what people were saying, what they were doing, what they were thinking of me behind my back as I quietly hunkered down for the evening. I'm sure it was as simple as that person has a really weird coat and nothing more malicious than that. But when you're traveling alone as a femme presenting individual, you, you learn to get nervous about certain things. And so... I think the lottery resonated with me for that reason. Just that idea that there might be something more malevolent happening just out of sight in the small towns that would stop by. And I thought about what that meant. Are those people necessarily cruel? Are they evil? No. Very often situations that are grim situations are just a result of how things are and there is no actual active malice behind it. So when Ellen presented the opportunity to write for the anthology, I immediately left on the lottery and wanted to mesh my love for it with my feelings of traveling to small towns.
1: I find it quite frightening that you're talking about your experience in small towns, and it is just like the lottery. It is Exactly, the attitudes you're describing, the looks you're describing, it is all just like Jackson writes about. It's yeah. it's freaky how it sometimes, you know life can mirror art and art can mirror life quite so seriously. And I mean, the, the wonderful thing about that story is obviously it's perfectly fine and dandy right up until the very last bit. And then you're like, Oh my God. <laughs> and it's it's like you were talking about the uh, flash fiction earlier that just kind of left you going, Oh my goodness. And just leaving it all open as to, to what's going on. I've wondered if Shirley Jackson in general was um, an inspiration for you beyond the lottery. And if so, whether you've woven any of her elements into other tales you've written?
2: Um, she's definitely part of that palette of inspirations. And I think what I've carried into my own work from reading hers is, is a lot of that loneliness I think that seeps through so much of her work, a lot of that quiet contemplation and wondering what it is to exist as a fem bodied person in societies that might not be as kind as they should be.
1: I mean, yeah, it's just, there are so many things to love about Jackson. <laughs> I, just, I think we we really should have a, a whole extra um, episode on her uh, and invite all of my horror friends who've all got something different to say on it. Yeah, but, I mean, we have actually had an entire episode on Jackson. I know, but that's what I'm saying, that everybody takes something different from Jackson though, don't they? So you could have... You could just gather all of the horror authors together and go, what do you get from Jackson then? (laughs) You'd you'd have a whole extra episode as people talked about it.
2: You really would. So moving
1: away from the excellent Jackson, to the slightly more dubious Lovecraft. Um, now, obviously, there were hints of Lovecraft in your Gods and Monsters book. So I wondered how you felt about writing modern Lovecraft-inspired fiction, when the original fiction is quite so controversial and in some cases, downright unpleasant these days.
2: The world is hostile to anyone that does not fit a specific mold, I think. If you are queer, if you are a person of color, if your dressing does not necessarily match the gender identity that people assign you, it's unsettling to exist. And I think my brain draws parallels with real life and Lovecraft's fearful hatred of everything and how he views everything not like him as monstrous and terrible. And there are only two ways to operate in a world that sees you as a monster that will be monstrous to you because it thinks you are the monster. And it's to either spend your entire life terrified and hiding or to walk into those spaces and claim it as your own to make that space a little bit safer for people who are like you. So I think part of my fascination is, yeah, just reclamation. And the other part of it is, in some weird way, I understand Lovecraft's enormous terror of the world, as we've discussed a little bit earlier in the podcast. It's terrifying to be femme-bodied and to travel alone. Over the course of the 10 years as a nomad, I've repeatedly realized that if something happened, if somebody decided to bug me and stab me in the street, you know, somewhere in Croydon or somewhere in Cologne, it's going to take weeks before any of my friends realize I'm dead. It's going to take even longer for somebody to report me being missing. And so that utter fear of the world and knowing It can swallow you up and you can just disappear into it. I recognize that. But I'm absolutely not going to use his example and meet that fear with hatred. So, Lovecraft shows up a lot in my works because I wrestle with that and I want to put some of it on paper.
1: I have to say, having read some of the previous Lovecraft and hated it and having read some of the output that is out there today, I am consistently amazed at how people are picking and choosing the better bits of Lovecraft and are creating the most amazing and inclusive stories. And I I think it's I think it's so wonderful to see something so negative within the horror community being turned into something so positive and going, Hey, no, we see the value in this work and we're going to push aside the bits we don't like. And we're going to write more about the stuff that in there is good. That makes me feel very positive about the horror community. I have to say.
2: Yeah, I agree as well. And I think it also embodies the best part of humanity, our ability when we are doing good by each other to, make something out of nothing to big progress out of terrible things we grow from our mistakes and the mistakes of those who come before us It's lovely
1: well i think we have discussed the heck out of your work and it's absolutely fantastic i don't want to finish on lovecraft though because never a good finish on a controversial topic so something on a bit more light-hearted just as our final question when earlier on i asked you which of your characters would you least like to meet i have to ask if you could pick any of your characters to sit down and have a cup of coffee with who do you think you would most like to have a chat with Ooh, ooh,
2: that one's interesting let me think about this weirdly enough rupert long he is a perfectly competent cook who does not necessarily use long pig unless he is asked for it i'd like to sit down and see how he's doing because he well Rupert suffers a lot. I think I just want to buy him a pint as a <laughs> and check in on him.
1: I, I could totally see that. Yeah. And like you say, as long as he stayed away from the long pig, then I bet he'd be an awesome person to, to make some snacks to go with that drink.
2: <laughs> he is absolutely a Michelin qualified chef in my head. Like he makes all the good stuff. He does. Excellent. Well, thank you so
1: much for joining us, Cassandra. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading and rereading all of your work for this podcast. And I have to recommend The Salt Grows Heavy as an excellent book, possibly not necessarily on an empty stomach (laughs) to, to read when it comes out. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so very much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and
0: produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.